Now, if you want to find uh, the book of Luke in your Bibles this morning, Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I used to warn people when uh, I was going to preach on the topic that I'm preaching on this morning so you could skip out if you felt the need to because uh, we're going to talk about money. And uh, sometimes when we get to that subject, people go, oh, like, I don't want to be here. I know what you're going to say. You should give more money and not buy so much stuff, right? Isn't that what you think? Well, I, I, my, that's not my tendency. Um, my tendency is to try to say, what does the scripture say? We open up the book. What do the scriptures say? And then let God speak to you individually about what he, it is he wants you to do. Um, I'll just um, relieve you a little bit. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about giving this morning, uh, but be prepared. I've got a couple of messages coming up in January about that, so uh, you can kind of get on your big boy pants for that a while. So we've been doing this journey through the Gospel of Luke, and it's interesting, from Luke chapter 9 through chapter 20, Jesus says more about money in this. This is a, scholars call this the journey where Jesus is making his way toward Jerusalem where he's going to be executed. But he talks more about money in this part of the Gospel, uh, gospel of Luke than he does in all of the other material in the Gospel accounts about Jesus' life and, and preaching. And, um, you know, you, you, you wonder, Jesus talks a lot about money, period, um, and you wonder why that is. Why, why is there so much conversation in, in Scripture about money to begin with? Do you know that there's about 500 verses in the Bible about prayer, about 500 verses about faith, and guess how many about money? Over 2,000. And you say, well, why would that be? Is, that, is money more important than prayer? Is it more important than faith? Well, no. But money, you know, money's the kind of thing that makes us get up in the morning. Uh, it, it, it makes us take great risks. Uh, sometimes it prompts us to turn our backs on other people. Uh, sometimes it's, it's the kind of thing that creates envy, uh, leads people to do, commit crimes, uh, to create hope in us or even a fear. And ultimately, money is the stuff, can be the stuff of worship. Uh, that great uh, observer of, of, uh, of American life, uh, Chris Rock, um, has, <laughs> Chris Rock has said the number one reason that people around the world hate America is because of our religion. Our religion. He says, Americans worship money. And, and there's some truth to that. Uh, the, the, by nature, the culture, we, there's a great uh, admiration for money and the stuff that money can buy and kind of makes us fix our eyes on it. And that's true whether you follow, uh, serve the Lord Jesus Christ or whether you serve no other God at all. It, money is just, it's ubiquitous. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, if you pull out a, a dollar bill and you open it up, Ever since 1957, there's a little statement on every piece of cash that you have in your pocket. Uh, on a $1 bill, it's right above the word one. It says, in God we what? God we trust. Isn't it interesting that that was put on our cash? In God we trust, in money we have. Though It's this, uh, 
It's interesting, kind of the story behind that, and I won't bore you with all the details, but it's almost like uh, we realize that this is the this is the almost automatic place we go when we really uh, say, "What do we trust in?" I trust in God if I have enough money. I trust in God if I have enough things. And yet most of us are mesmerized when we read stories about people like George Mueller and so forth that really just trusted God daily for bread, literally, for food, for his own food, and for feeding the thousands of kids in his orphanages. And yet most of us don't live like that. Benjamin Franklin says, money has never made man happy, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. I want you, you know, if you think about the money that you have or the money you'd like to have, most of us are convinced that um, we would, if we would have all that we would desire to have, that we would be different with it than other people are, that we would think differently about it. When I was in Bible college, we used to drive the back way from uh, Paradise to, to Lancaster Bible College, and we would drive through the town of Eden. You ever been through Eden? Beautiful place. You know, large um, estates and beautiful homes. There's a place in there that just in the last two years, they totally leveled what was a, an expensive home back in the 70s or 80s, totally leveled it and built this monstrosity beautiful beautiful home and we used to drive through there and you know we didn't have two nickels to rub together and and uh, we'd look at these gorgeous homes and and it was always kind of an ongoing joke between my wife and I you know she she wished we could have a place like that and all and I would say ah these 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 people they you know they have money but they don't have what we have and and one day we went through I said look look I mean look at it we can't see people in the yards, but look at the squirrels running through their yards. Their yards, Even they don't look happy. And my wife, she's like, but I would, I'd, I would love to have their money just for a while, just, just to see what it would be like, and I'm sure I could be happy with it. And yet, what did John Rockefeller say, one of the, probably the wealthiest men the world has ever known? What did he say when somebody asked him, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Never quite enough. There's always something else that I'd like to do with it. All right, Luke chapter 16. Let's listen to Jesus. He tells a story in this chapter, and it's kind of a setup for two mini sermons that he's going to tell. This is, uh, most scholars agree, this is the most difficult of all of Jesus' stories to, in, uh, to kind of interpret because it doesn't seem like a story Jesus would tell. He tells that about a bad guy, and then he seems to commend this bad guy. So let's read. <clears throat> Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. And one day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. And so the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. Now, this is before the days when you get fired and you were immediately escorted off the property by the security team. Uh, you have to have time to get the bookwork and the papers in order so that the next guy coming in is not at a loss about what's taking place. So he has just a little bit of time. And the manager thought to himself, well, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I'm too proud to beg. Ah. 
I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. And so he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation with, with him. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, well, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, well, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer, he asked the next man. I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, said the manager, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. Now, the rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. And then... When your earthly possessions are gone, they will welcome you into uh, to an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrust, untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you, <clears throat> and if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and serve the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this and scoffed at him. And that he said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Don't miss that last line. What this world honors, and you think about what the world honors, all kinds of things that it honors, but what heads the list? Money and wealth. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Father, I pray that as we kind of unpack these words of our Savior, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us individually. Every one of us has a different life experience A lot of similarities, but everyone a different life experience. We've come from different backgrounds. Some of us might have come from very difficult, impoverished backgrounds. Some of us might have been raised with a silver spoon in our mouth. Uh, We've grown up with different experiences. For some of us, it might have been really easy as we uh, got married and started a family. For some of us, it might have been really difficult. And everything in between... Some of us have seen the the joys and the wonders of giving money away. Some of us have thought that when we've given money away, it doesn't seem like things have gotten any better for us. All kinds of experiences that the same Lord of glory wants to speak into. And And that's my prayer this morning, that Jesus would speak to each one of us just as he did to the Pharisees in that day. And I pray that we'd have the kind of open hearts that would allow um, Jesus to speak to us, um, pliable hearts, hearts that are not resistant, not reluctant, not hesitant, pliable hearts, so that we might find what's truly joy-giving in our lives. Instead of some of the alternatives and the substitutes that the world keeps telling us, no, no, this is what's important. This is what's matter, what matters. And we pray against the enemy of our souls who hates you, he hates us, and he hates 
when we get it right. So we pray that you would bind uh, Satan this morning, muzzle him, and that you would be glorified and exalted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to do is start in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, begin there, and then we'll look at the rest of the text uh, together, asking the question out of these verses, what's your track record? What's your track record? And uh, what, what Jesus is speaking about in these verses when he talks about little versus much is uh, if you want to be entrusted with greater riches, what's your track record in handling uh, fewer things? Uh, if you want to be entrusted with much in this world, we, we start with being responsible with little. I love John Wesley's uh, statement, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. If you would take all of the counsel of Scripture when it comes to money, that probably would sum it all up. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And I want you to think specifically this morning about God, what God has entrusted you with. The money that you have, the resources you have, the, the material things that you have, the 401k you have, the investment portfolio you do or don't have. Um, I want you to think about those things and ask yourself the question, have I and am I being faithful um, to the Lord with those things. And that's not a question anybody else in this room should be answering for you. But that's a question for you to answer before the Lord. Um, my favorite quarterback in all the NFL is Kirk Cousins, no secret. Uh, Kirk played football for my team, the uh, Washington Redskins, which absolutely are stinking up the NFL so far, uh, last couple of games. But uh, we're hoping for better things in years to come. Uh, for some reason, the Washington Redskins didn't, wouldn't give him a contract uh, that he wanted, and so he went to the Minnesota Vikings for 80, a cool $84 million over uh, five years. And when they signed that contract, uh, he became the highest-paid uh, NFL player in the league. Now, the reason I'm so fond of Kirk is he's a fellow disciple. He loves Jesus. And uh, as, as I've watched his career, have watched a man who has walked faithfully with Jesus in a, diff- in a difficult setting. I mean, it's tough to walk with Jesus in the military and tough to walk with Jesus when you're a rich celebrity. And yet he has. Uh, so even before he got this contract, last year he earned about $24 million just in a single year. The year before that, about $19 million. So he's a multi-millionaire. And yet he, he, dri- he drives around in his grandmother's 2000 Chevy conversion van that he paid, paid $5,000 for. And during the season, uh, he had a townhouse, he and his wife had a townhouse in Virginia. But the rest of the, se- uh, in the off season, he, li- he lived in his um, parents' basement. Or if that wasn't available, they lived in his wife's parents' basement down in Georgia. And he has become, he's been so frugal that Ally Investments has now been using him for the last year and a half to do advertisements for them. Um, meanwhile, he's quietly serving the Lord with his money and giving a bunch of it his way, helped put his sister through med school and so forth. And I, and I think about, here's a man who's, uh, you know, and he grew up in a Christian home and he was taught, you know, biblical principles and taught to love the Lord when he was young and so that stuff sticks with you but still when you get that kind of money it's how tempting it is to live an entirely different lifestyle and I, you know I've just really been ad- admiring him over the years to see him handle his money 
in this kind of, of fashion. Um, and, I, and I wonder if you could say, as you look in the eyes of your Savior one day, say, I've been, I've been faithful with what God's blessed me with. And, and uh, in, you know, it's, it's almost instinctive for us. We say, well, it's not really all that important for me. I only make $50,000 a year or $40,000 a year. It's those people that, you know, make a half a million a year. No, no, no. And Jesus is saying, be faithful in whatever you have, whether it's much or little. Be faithful in what you've got. Now, I should say that you won't find anything in this text that the prosperity gospel teachers might exploit to say, if you're faithful in a little bit, then God will give you a lot. There's nothing in this text to say that. If you're faithful in a little bit, God might keep giving you a little bit. He might give you a lot, but he might just keep giving you a little bit. It's no great reward to be given a ton. And people who have a ton will tell you that to be true. Just look at the, look at the series of uh, Hollywood celebrities that, that have everything that you and I might ever hope for and dream of, and then they put a bullet through their head. Or they OD. I mean, the, the, the tragedies out there are, are, are multiple about people who have everything that you and I might hope to have. What's your track record, Jesus is asking? Again, not for other people to judge us. Now, in, this, in these couple of verses, he says, if you're faithful with little things, you'll be faithful in large things. You will be faithful. He's not saying you're going to get large things. If you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. If you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you, or with worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? Now, before we leave these three verses, let me say one thing about verse 12. And if you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? Now, the context suggests that this is primarily talking, again, about uh, God's things versus having stuff to ourselves. But there's an interesting little implication that can be uh, applied here and this is especially true for parents first of all one application I'll get to your parents in a minute one application would be that we have a responsibility when we take out a loan or borrow money from people to pay that back and pay it back when we should why because it's other people's stuff there are people in this church who have gone bankrupt and could have been absolved legally of paying back all of that money that somebody lost who have paid every dime back. It's other people's money. You take out a loan to the bank, you take out a loan for college, it's other people's money. That you, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to watch the political dialogue take, if you can call it dialogue, take place about college education and and college debts and so forth. And one of the proposals that we just wipe everybody's college debts out. But those are, that's other people's money. It's other people's money. And as believers, we're responsible to take care of getting other people's money back to them. Another application of verse 12, if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? Caring for stuff you borrow. <laughs> Somebody loans you their stuff, and you kind of treat it, mistreat it, you give it back, and it's kind of banged up and scratched up and so forth. And this can be especially true as what I'm getting to it as parents. When you go to other, other people's houses, 
You know, do your kids run rampant with the stuff there and leave things behind that are broken and so forth? And I, I'm not talking so much about three-year-olds as I am seven-year-olds and ten-year-olds, you know. Do the people when you leave go, oh, thank God they're gone. You know, I have a lot of stuff to now replace now that you've been gone. Something that you could teach your kids out of this text. Teach your kids. We have a responsibility to learn to take care of other people's stuff, not just our own. But let's get to the meat of this text. And we're going to kind of work our way backwards. Uh, that's not true. We'll go start with the story that Jesus told and then get to the final verses here. 13 to 15. So Jesus tells this story. And as we read it, were you troubled by it? That Jesus would tell a story about a dishonest man and, and sound like he's applauding this guy's, uh, what he's doing. He has a, he's cheating his employer. Um, he's trying to make himself look good. And Jesus is using this as, in some way, as a sermon illustration to say, this, this is something you should learn from. Now, the thing that Jesus was applauding, though, was not his dishonesty. What was he applauding? Let's put it, uh, let's, let's put it this way. Jesus was basically telling you and I, as his followers, that we should think ahead beyond retirement when it comes to money. That we should be thinking about the next life when it comes to money. Now, most of us, if we'd sit down with a financial advisor, they want to give us good counsel on, on how to make sure that we have a, uh, enough money so that when we retire, that we can live comfortably or at the same level that we live at now. Not really sure that that's God's plan for us, but that's neither here nor there. But one of the things that most of financial advisors don't talk about is thinking financially about the beyond retirement, the next life the life to come. And it's almost, if you don't listen carefully, it's almost as if you're hearing Jesus say, make sure that you buy your way into eternity. Look at the couple of verses, excuse me, a couple of verses there. Here's the lesson, verse nine. Excuse me. Use your worldly resources, your money and your stuff, to benefit others and make friends. And then when your earthly possessions are gone, they will who? We're not sure, right? They will welcome you into an eternal home. Whoever the they is, the important thing is that your money and your stuff should be serving the, your purposes of entering into the future kingdom of heaven. Now, as I say, if you just read this kind of on the surface, it sounds like you're trying to buy your way into heaven. It's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is, <clears throat> someone has said this way, If Jesus has your wallet, he probably has everything else. And if he doesn't have your wallet, he probably doesn't have anything else. Why? Because money is such a barometer of where our heart is, right? That's why Jesus says you can't can't serve God in money. It's not possible. Money is such a barometer of where our heart is that Jesus is saying, if you use the money that God has given you, and the material wealth that God has given you to serve God and to serve other people, that is establishing a home for you, or maybe better put, that, has, that is evidence that there is a rightful place for you in heaven. Not because you've bought your way in, but because Jesus Christ, having died and risen again for you on your behalf, is, and, and given evidence of his work of grace in your life that you do 
live not simply to accumulate stuff, but to serve first and foremost God, and second, the people that he puts in your path who are in need of your resources. And I wonder how many of us would say that we're doing a good job of thinking about eternity when it comes to our money and our stuff. Or are we more inclined to think about retirement or even next year's desires and longings when it comes to our money and stuff? Now, I might ask the question, well, how do I even know to answer the question that Jesus asks towards the end here? He doesn't ask a question. He makes a statement. But the question, I think, is being asked. No one, verse 13, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one, love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But don't we try? (laughs) My guess is if we're being honest, all of us would say we like money. Is there anybody here that doesn't like money? Would you put up your hand? Because I'll be glad to relieve you of whatever you have. I think all of us like money, and that's not a bad thing. We need money, right? The only way we have a roof over our heads is either we pay the mortgage or we pay the rent. The only way we get from point A to B, if it's more than a mile or a couple of miles, is going to be a car. So we've got to buy a car, and we have to have money to put gas in the car. We, we have to have money for all kinds of things. Your kids go to, go to school wearing clothes that you purchased for them. And they sit in classrooms that you paid for with your taxes and the teachers were hired with your taxes and books were bought with your taxes. We, we've gathered in a building today that you know, we're paying down a $2 million loan for. Everything costs money. We like money for basic necessities, clothes, food, and we like it for luxuries as well. Some of you went out for dinner last night and you had to pay money in order to do that. We all like money. The only way we get to go on a vacation is if we have money. The issue is not whether or not we like money. It's whether or not we love money, right? 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the like of money. It's not the having of money. The solution to a money fixation in our lives is not to enter a convent or a monastery. The solution to a fixation with money is to rethink who it's for. Is it primarily for me? And for my loved ones. Or maybe I should say, is it exclusively for me and my loved ones? And maybe the biggest question that we should wrestle with is, whose money is it? Whose money is it? And so we look at my bank account, you look at my investment portfolio, it has my name on it. You look at your checking account, whose name's on it? Whose, whose name's on your credit card? It's my name. Whose is it? The repeated answer to that question all through Scripture is that it is God's, 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 even for those who don't acknowledge him. It's all his. Every cent you've ever earned is his. Every good fortune you've had, a raise, a a return on on an investment, a, a, a 
something good happens to you in your career or there's an inheritance, all of that happened because of the hand of God. And God says, you can't, you can't, you can't serve it and me. Again, you're asking, how, how can I tell whether I'm serving God or I'm serving money? Well, one way you can't tell is by looking at who has more than you. This is often how we tell. Somebody that loves money is somebody that's making twice as much as I am. That's just pride because we're ticked that we don't have as much as they have. And all through the scripture, we have evidence that there are people, godly people who've loved the Lord, who've been very wealthy. Abraham, probably the greatest name in the Old Testament. Very rich. Genesis chapter 13, he came up out of Egypt Egypt with a, a... boatload well maybe he didn't have a boat but a lot of gold and silver and a lot of flocks and a lot of herds solomon wisest man who ever lived at least for a time god specifically blessed him with a lot of money because when god asked him what would you prefer you ask me for anything and i'll give it to you what do you want more than anything else as you begin your reign as king and solomon says i want wisdom because i don't i don't know how to shepherd these people god says a wonderful wonderful request i'll give you that but because you asked for such a wise thing i'm going to give you riches as well it wasn't god wasn't like i can't give him riches because it's gonna go bad bust him with that joseph of arimathea in the new testament the bible says he was a rich man yet he was a follower of jesus and he provided the tomb in which jesus body laid for Very short time, hallelujah. So we can't look at people and say, okay, if you have a lot of money, that means you serve money, just like we can't look at uh, people who are very poor and assume because they don't have much that they serve God. There are poor people that serve money and there are rich people that serve money. There are poor people that serve God and there are rich people who serve God. So that's not really the way for us to tell. I think of this, this guy that came to Jesus in Luke chapter 12. And he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, my assumption is that he didn't have much money to work with. He's wanting the inheritance that is rightfully his. And so here's a guy who's pretty poor and assumingly not have much. And Jesus criticizes him. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So richness, poorness, not away. That's not going to tell us whether or not we serve God or money. So what does tell us? I'm going to give you five suggestions this morning. Worry. I wonder if I asked you to raise your hands, how many of us say we worry about money? My guess is almost all the guys would, for starters, and some of you ladies as well. It's almost instinctive. We men worry about money. We want to provide for our families. We want to provide well. We get an unexpected big bill or some financial reversal. And we go, oh, man, what's going to happen now? That's telling. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25. And it's interesting. And he's saying this immediately on the heels of what we just read in Luke. 
No one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one, yada, yada. You cannot serve money, God and money. And then he says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, <clears throat> my guess is we don't sweat a lot, worry a lot about whether or not we'll have clothes for our kids or enough food for our kids. It's beyond that. We're thinking about college funds and, and we're thinking about um, something that we'd like to have, a trip we'd like to have, or an investment that we'd like to chase after. But this applies to it all. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? In other words, your worry is is, um, uh, grounded on the fact that you think you have to do everything. Can you all your worries add add a single moment to your life? Verse 28. And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. And yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? In other words, faith can be a measurement of whether or not we serve God or money. The application of faith to our resources that we do or don't have. Again, we're talking about things that might tell us whether or not we serve God or money. Worry is one. Another one can be the main messages or message that we give to our children. I wonder if I gathered your 12, 13, 14-year-old children in the room set them down and ask them, what's the main message that you hear from mom and dad on an ongoing basis? What's the thing that you hear repeated by them over and over that you can't escape? And somebody says, what's, what's, uh, what's your mom and dad's mission for you in life? And you answer, be good. Stop picking on my brother or sister. What's the main message you're getting from your parents? Something like that. I wonder how many of them also might say this. Maybe this is getting to be a little older, but main thing I hear from mom and dad is to do well in school so that you can get into college or get into a good college so you can have a good career and make a lot of money. I wonder how many of our kids would say, you know, that's a message I hear again and again and again. Versus, I wonder how many of those 12 to 14-year-olds would say, you know what I hear from mom and dad over and over? That Jesus, Becky, Jesus Christ died and rose again to save a sinner like you and a sinner like me and a sinner like your mom. And that when you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, he gives you a new life. He transforms this life and he gives you the next life. Not because you're a good kid. You're as bad as mom and I are. But simply because God set his affections on you and he poured out his son's life for you. And that's the main message I hear from mom and dad. I wonder how many of our kids would say that. 
I don't think mine would have. What will tell us whether or not we serve God or money? Here's a third suggestion. I have a broken friendship or a broken relationship with somebody in my family because of money. My guess is that most of us know somebody who's on the outs with a family member because of an inheritance squabble. I think, I think of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's saying, look, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have no business taking another believer to court, suing them. And he says, why not rather be cheated? In other words, you are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. You're going to spend all eternity together. Jesus shed the same amount of blood for that person as he did for you. Are you kidding me? You could take each other to court? And yet that same kind of tension surfaces sometimes when, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars are being divvied up or millions of dollars are being divvied up. And all of a sudden, the family that, that was concerned about each other, loved each other, cared for each other, all of a sudden, they, they're blown apart by money that's going to go away. It's going to be spent. It's going to burn. It's going to rust. It keeps people apart. fourth possible way to tell if we're serving God or money is stinginess. And as I said, I've got a couple of messages coming up in January on giving. I want to dwell on this, but stinginess, whether it's with giving to God or other people that you encounter, God puts in your path sovereignly, and that he's looking to you with resources to help. Stinginess. God has a lot to say about the scriptures. Here's a fifth and final way to tell. Personal indebtedness. Personal indebtedness. I am not talking about business um, debt, investment in a company and so forth. You're trying to get a business up. I'm talking about the kind of debt that we have in personal loans and credit card. We end up looking at what our friends have and we don't have. We end up looking at the latest um, things we've spotted on Amazon when we were on there making an order and like, oh man, I'd love to have that. You need it? No, I don't need it, but it'd be great. You ever think about how marketing disables our satisfaction? That when we see that thing or we see what a friend just got that we don't have, it's like, oh, man. You know, yesterday I was satisfied. I was okay with the car I had, but I'm not anymore. My friend gets a new Volvo, and all of a sudden my old Chevy's not as exciting as it once was. Marketing disables satisfaction or contentment. And I end up buying things that I can't afford. 
because I want to compete with somebody, because I just want the latest new cool phone, or because, uh, because it's actually become idolatry in my life. And that credit card bill comes in and like, oh, boy, I can only pay the minimum payment again. You know, all this, all this money is being accrued in interest over the, over the years because I, I can't really pay the thing back. And all the kinds of money that we might use for the glory of God or for the needs of others taken off the table because it's being devoured by interest. And it all comes out of ungodly longings and desires about Things that are going to one day fade away. You know, um, I was telling my son last night, I said, you know, if I was younger, one of the things that would be uh, of interest to me, my kids are trying to think, what can we buy dad for his birthday? And I, I told Betty, I said, I don't need anything and I don't really want anything. I'm in the stage of life, like I've got all I need and, you know, I, my health's not such that I can be doing all the kinds of things that I w- might like to do. So I don't really have anything even I, that I want. But if I was in old, younger, I, I would be interested in getting a drone. Anybody else interested in drones? BJ would be, yeah, a couple of. I mean, uh, some of my friends have drones and are into photography, and they put this stuff on social media. And it's like, it's so cool. I'm into, I love scenery pictures and stuff. I just imagine flying over the farmland and taking pictures of this. That'd be cool. And I can just see me going to Betty and say, honey, I'd like to buy a drone. She's like, a what? Is that something from Star Wars? And I'm like, no, no, I mean a flying thing, take pictures. And she's like, she would be like, we don't need a drone like, yeah, but it'd be cool. And how many times is it that we, we kind of make our case, maybe with our spouse, uh, but maybe just with our own heart, we make a case of our, I, it would be cool. And it's like we can kind of justify it. And even if we don't have the money, we just go out and we put that on the charge card because it, it's cool. You know, and if I say to Betty often enough, it'd really be cool, she'll buckle My life's verse says, Philippians 4, 11 to 13. And it starts out like this. I have learned the secret of being content. I wonder how many of us would say, I have learned the secret of being content. That's my life's verse, not because I've got it figured out, but because I want this to be the case. I have learned the secret of being content. We'll skip the next verse and go right to 13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I have it memorized in the NIV. And that last verse is the stuff of short-term mission trips, right? We, we memorize this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can fly and I'm scared to fly. I can, I can eat food that I don't like and because I, I can do it through Christ who gives me strength. I can lift 300 pounds instead of just 280 because I, Christ who gives me strength. That's not the context. I've learned the secret of being content, Paul says, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In other words, whether the lot that God has dealt me is that I'm poor or whether I'm well-off or something in between, I can live that life with joy and adoration for Jesus Christ because he is my great satisfaction. I don't need a drone. I don't need more money. I don't need another stock. 
I don't need a newer car. I don't need a bigger house. I need Jesus and he's my contentment. Do I serve God? Or do I serve money? If as you ponder those kinds of things, you come to the conclusion, wow, one or two of those things are true in my life. What do I do? Let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 8. There was a very pivotal time in my life when I thought that God had abandoned me. And these verses were ones that God used. I remember the day I was reading them and just began to weep, hearing God remind me of how he's never let me down. This is starting in verse 12. Deuteronomy 8, verse 12. Um, For when you have been... This is God speaking to the Israelites while they're still out in the desert before they've made it to the promised land. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. And he did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. It is the hand of God that provides all wealth whether you got a lot, a little, or something in between. And so the desire of God's heart is that you would worship him and not his gifts, that you would worship and serve him and not his gifts. And so the place to start, if you find that one of these things is true of you, obviously the place to start with any sin is repentance. God, i got to admit that I, I'm a worrier. I fret about whether or not we're going to be able to make ends meet this month or that next month. And I, I worry about whether or not this plan can ever come to fruition. And I, I'm, God, what am I going to do? Repent, God says, and lean into me. If I've been giving a money message, a stuff message, and I get it. Look, I, nobody wants their kids to come home after college and live at home for the next seven years. So we want them to be able to get a job and pay off their student loans and be able to start a family and so forth. I get that. But the most important message that your kids need is not that they get a great career and make a lot of money. They need a message that reminds them of Jesus and the only hope that he is. That's the message they need to hear again and again and again. If you're out of sorts with a friend or a relative because of money, go and ask their forgiveness. You don't need to take upon yourself their sins. You just need to take upon yourself your own and receive the forgiveness that Christ offers you and hopefully your former friend or brother or sister will as well. Four. 
Develop a life of generosity. If you are stingy, develop a life of generosity. As I said, we're going to talk more about that in the months to come. If you are living a life of indulgence and you have a lot of debt to show for it, um, get some help. One of the pastors will be glad to help you with that. Another Christian brother, sister, there are many in this church who will be glad to help you with that. Um, Get things clear. Get things paid off. Uh, Let me, I want to read in closing just a couple of verses here, and I'm over time. But 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6, a lot of of things that the Apostle Paul says in, in this chapter about money and wealth. And he is writing to Timothy, who was a pastor at Ephesus. He says, teach those, this is verse 17, teach those who are rich in this world. And by the way, just because you don't have a lot of money, you probably are rich by his standards anyway. By most of the world's standards, all of us are. So teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. The secret is not giving all your money away. The secret is, not in, tr- is in not trusting in it. To really do what it says on the back of that dollar bill. To trust in God. Not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future. He's talking about post-retirement, right? The next life, for that future. Storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life, meaning the life that is found in Jesus Christ. I want to read just a line or two here from this book by uh, Leonard Ravenhill called Revival Praying. And this would have been written back in the early 1960s. And he conveyed a letter that was written by a leader in India by the name of Christian leader by the name of Bhakt Singh. And he says, the indigenous churches in India have a great burden for America just now and are praying that God will visit your country with revival. You feel sorry for us in India because of our poverty and material things. We who know the Lord in India feel sorry for you in America because of your spiritual poverty. We pray that God may give you gold tried in the fire, which he has promised to those who know the power of his resurrection. You see, because we are repeatedly bombarded with this message, it's ever so easy in this country to believe that wealth is both the blessing of God and the promise of God. The blessing of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, period. And the promise of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, period. In him is much joy. And in the stuff of the world is much joy if we use it for his kingdom and the investment in our eternal future. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Our hope is in him. Our hope is in him. We are so grateful for the provision that you've made for us financially. I'm so glad that when Betty goes to the grocery store next week, We're not going to have to sit down and wonder together how it is 
we're going to be able to buy groceries this week. And yet, on the other hand, how glorious it would be to even in that small thing to come together as a husband and wife and cry out to the Lord of provision for him to meet our needs. Because whether we have little and need to do that or have a lot and don't need to do that, every bit of it has come from your hand. And it's just that when there's plenty, it's easy to forget that. And my bottom line prayer for each of us, Lord, is that we might find the great contentment and satisfaction in Jesus Christ, that we'd pass that along to our children, that it would not be tainted by a lot of money or just a bit of money, that we would serve exclusively you. And then conversely, uh, we would have money serve us rather than us serve it. In Jesus' name, amen.